We all want to make a difference in our work, and many of us also want to help those we lead do it too. In this episode, Liz Wiseman returns to show us how to take the lead, play bigger, and ultimately multiply your impact. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 554. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know one of the things that so many of us want in our careers is to really make an impact, to be an impact player, as today's guest calls it. But also, we want to be able to help others to do that well, too. Uh, today, a conversation I know that will help us to really find our way to make an even more extraordinary impact on the work we do every day and the organizations that we lead. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show Liz Wiseman. She is a researcher and executive advisor and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, The Multiplier Effect, Tapping the Genius Insider Schools, and also the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, two of them we featured on the show before. She is the CEO of the Wiseman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley. Her clients include Apple, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, Twitter, and many others. Liz has been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. She's a former Oracle executive who worked over the course of 17 years as the vice president of Oracle University and as the global leader for human resource development. She is the author of the new book, Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. Liz, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so good to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, me too. I loved the book. I was joking with you that I got so much into one of the chapters. I actually didn't get to the rest of the book because there was so much there that really speaks to not only how can we do this better for ourselves, but how can we really help motivate others to do this too. And uh, I was struck in particular with the story that you tell in the book about early in your career at Oracle, you were a year into your career and suddenly there was a change and you found yourself in a conversation about what's next. And I was wondering if you could share that story. Oh, you know, I was, I had been at Oracle for a year and I was working as a program manager and, you know, I had, I had had some success and uh, there was a reorganization. I had this opportunity to, to transfer into another group and it was the internal training group. And this group, you know, so Oracle's on a massive, massive hiring spree. So the company's doubling in employees and revenue every year. We're hiring just thousands of graduates out of like top CS programs each year. And I have a chance to transfer to the group that runs these technical boot camps. And I'm excited, not because I want to go join the technical boot camps as much as I'm pretty sure that this group's charter is going to expand to include management training, which was like, the thing I was really interested in and thing I started my career wanting to do. And so I'm interviewing for this job and, you know, I'm answering. So I interview with the manager and director and I'm interviewing with the VP of the group and I, you know, answer all his questions and it gets to the end. And it's kind of like my turn to like take charge of this interview. And so I make my case about how, you know, Oracle is lacking management training and there's all these managers who have been these, you know, 
engineers and programmers and they're being thrown into management and they're sort of wreaking havoc on their teams because they don't know how to manage and we really need to build some management training. And I kind of like make this case that Oracle needs a management boot camp and that I would love to build this. And so I kind of make my generous offer. <laughs> and and you know, this is Bob Shaver. His reaction was, well, it's like, that's great. Like, you're great. You know, we think you're great. We're excited to have you join this group, but your boss has a different problem. And he, he said, she's got to figure out how to get 2,000, you know, new college graduates up to speed on Oracle technology over the next year. And what would be great is if you could help her do that. Mm-hmm. And, and he was so polite about it, but like I, I was translating his message into something probably less polite, which was just like, Liz, <laughs> make yourself useful here. And, you know, they needed, they needed technical trainers and I wanted to teach, but honestly had zero interest in teaching the technology because, man, I wasn't really passionate about this. You know, I don't know the virtues of database indexing techniques was like not really my thing. And I didn't have a strong technical background. And so, you know, the idea of like teaching programming to a bunch of hotshot programmers from MIT like that's that's not my that's not my thing. Yeah. And you know, I wanted to teach leadership, you know, and and Bob now wants me to teach programming to a bunch of nerds. <laughs> and I'm like this is not the job I wanted. But I don't know, like I could somehow sense that this was something I needed to do. Like it was important to the company. And so, you know what? I should make it important to me. And it was like this I, for me, it was a really pivotal moment in my career where I, I think I realized, Liz, you know what? No one really cares what you want. Mm. <laughs> you know, like figure out what the company needs and go, go do that. And I'm not, I, I don't mean to say like people don't really care what's important to the people who work for them. But what I needed to do is first make the mission of the company important to me. And so I did it. And I signed up for this job. And, you know, man, it was a steep learning curve. but. I ended up, you know, getting pretty good at it. And and strangely, you know, about a year into that job, they asked me to manage the the group and to lead Oracle University. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I, I'm having a great time teaching programming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, in some ways it was like a ruse because I really didn't know that much about programming, but I was just really enjoying learning about this. And and then again, I was I, I kind of declined that job. And they're like, no, we want you to do this. And I'm like, oh, give the job to this person or that person. They probably want it. And, I'm, and they're like, no, we want you to do it. Huh. And I think there was a couple of reasons for that. One is because I understood the technology, which was the core of the company. It's a, it's a software company. And two, I think it had something to do with the fact that I was willing to work and serve where I was needed. Like, I think it shed uh, like any prima donna tendencies. I. I might've been bringing, it was like, get over yourself Mm. and be of help. It reoriented me for certain. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. And when I read the story in the book, I was thinking, I I have a very similar story, although slightly different perspective of, and ironically, mine was a year into a role as well. I worked for Dale Carnegie training for many, many years. Mm. And my first year in, I had this job that I thought was great. I was heading up doing some coaching things and running the coaching programs. I thought it was an amazing opportunity. And I was about three months into this new role 
And my boss sat me down and said, I really need someone to step into this account, managing an account we have, mostly a sales role, because we have someone leaving. And I really think you're the best person to do it. And like you, I had the thought of like, oh my goodness, I do not want that job because I knew it was going to be a huge learning curve. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. And it took me three days to say yes, Liz. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and I look back now and I think if I had said no, I wouldn't, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. There's no way. Like it totally changed the trajectory of my career in a good way because all of a sudden I got better at the business side, in addition to the coaching things, and it and it opened up so many doors for me. And to to reinforce the point you made, it's what the company needed at the time. They didn't need someone running a coaching program, actually, in retrospect. What they really needed was someone who would do a great job at handling that opportunity. And because I was willing, even though it took me three days, I was willing to be flexible um, a bit, uh, it opened up so many opportunities to me, too. And this actually is, I think this gets to one of the distinctions that you make in the book, which is the distinction between a contributor and an impact player. Tell me about that distinction. Well, you know, I, I, oh, I so want to jump right into that, but but Dave, I just want to, if I can pause and like unpack a little bit of your story and my story. Sure. And then, and then we'll get to this idea of the impact player. Like think about what that does. Someone who's willing to say yes to what their company, their organization, their leadership needs what that does is that like it relieves a burden for the the leader, which is like, oh, thank goodness, like I need someone to do this versus the exact opposite dynamic of someone who's like, well, this is what I want to do. See, not only are you not relieving that pressure that the leader feels to get a job done, you're you're adding rocks to their backpack because what you're saying is, oh, and while you're trying to get the most important things done, could you fit my like pet? peeve hobbies into that. Can you find things for me to do that will be interesting for me? So it's like, not only am I not doing what's needed, I've now created this additional burden of like, oh, okay, now I've got to find something to keep like Liz occupied and interested Mm. and working here. And so you've created this like double the burden on your leaders. And, And I think it is one of the things that really distinguishes what I call contributors from impact players. And I don't really mean people per se. I mean, ways of thinking and ways of working, because I've been in both mindsets myself, you know, but the impact player there, you know, while the contributor might be doing their job and doing it extremely well, the impact player is doing the job that needs to be done. You know, figuring out what's important here, what's needed, how can I make myself useful? How can I take the things that I'm good at and apply those to the the work at hand rather than trying to contort the work to fit what I care about? You write uh, in the book, impact players, don't they don't see problems as distractions from their job. Rather, they are the job, not just their job, but everyone's job. And I think that's a great lead into some of the habits that you found in your research that the impact player mindset really does dive into. And one of the first habits that that you found is the practice, the habit of learning the game. And one of the invitations you make is to really consider something you call upward empathy. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what upward empathy is and how does it help in learning the game? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I, I feel like I should give just a little bit of background to, to my thoughts on that. And that is, I have spent the last, oh, more than a decade helping leaders operate in a way that, you know, I call multiplies the intelligence of a team, like that the leader's job is to create an environment where people can do their best work and best thinking. And so for a decade, I've been looking at what is the leader's role and how do they need to really understand and empathize their team? And in this piece of research, in some ways, I'm looking at the exact opposite, which is if you want a high contribution environment, an environment where people are working at their very best, what is the contributor's role in this? And again, empathy comes into play, but it's it's upward empathy. So like, you know, ironically, I've been teaching leaders for more than a decade how to empathize with what's going on with their staff. Right. Well, a little bit of upward empathy goes a long way. So if you want to do your best work, you could sit around and say, well, I'm waiting for like my boss to discover me. Like I'm going to sit here and wait for them to figure out who I am and what I'm brilliant at and how I can be used. Well, if you really want to be utilized and to have your talents, you know, seen and maximized in your work and be able to do work that has a lot of meaning, it really starts with upward empathy, meaning not like, oh, you know, let me try to understand and real feel for my boss. It's it starts in the head, which is what are the challenges that my boss is facing? Like, what is work like for them? What makes their job hard? You know, and in some ways it's what am I doing that makes my boss's job hard? And, uh. you know, and I think for me, this idea of upward empathy came early in my career because, you know, I said yes to that technical training job. And then I got thrown into management. And then I'm like in my mid twenties working with senior executives. And I really saw like how hard that job was and how lonely that job was and, you know, what I could do to help them accomplish what they were trying to do in the organization. And you can imagine what happens, like when you empathize upward to understand the challenges and needs of those who are your leaders, like empathy tends to prompt empathy. Like we often think, oh, well, if I empathize upward, then I'm going to be like taken advantage of, and they're going to use me. No, like when we empathize with others, they tend to empathize back with us. And suddenly like our capabilities are seen, our needs are seen, our challenges are more seen, and it creates this wonderful partnership. The the second of these three habits that you highlight is the invitation to those of us who want to take on that mindset of impact players to play where we're needed. And you have an analogy in the book about foosball, which I thought was beautiful. Could you share that? Yeah. You know, the food, I I think this analogy is there because I'm not good at foosball. Like I'm terrible. (laughs) I, I don't really understand how people are good at foosball because I just can't get those players to be where they need to, to get the ball. But like, you know, there's a lot of people in organizations who are stuck in their jobs. Like they're kind of like the foosball players stuck on that pole, which is like, this is my position. And they don't move off of it. You know, one of the things that was so startling to me in this research, and I guess I've never really explained the research is, you know, trying to understand why some people get stuck going through the motions and why other people really break through and and are really impactful in their work. You know, we asked managers, we interviewed 170 managers and asked them to describe someone who was like an ordinary contributor, someone who was smart, capable, hardworking, 
but was like doing what was expected versus someone who was smart, capable, and hardworking and was making this extraordinary impact. And what just struck me initially was that the managers, like their collective description of ordinary contributors was, hey, these are people who they do their job, they do it well, they do it extremely well, they they take ownership, they follow direction, they, they're focused, and they carry their weight on teams. I'm like, wow, this sounds like an ideal team member or contributor. But yet these were the people who weren't making impact. And part of it is because they were doing their job. And you're like, well, Liz, how is that, how is this possible that like the people who are doing their jobs aren't really the people who are adding a lot of value? They're like, yeah, they do their jobs, which is it it's great in ordinary times, but the reality is, you know, most of the hard problems inside organizations don't line up neatly with org charts. Like, you know, they don't match departments like, okay, here's a problem. Like, oh, it just happens to fit into the purchasing department nice and neatly. Like most challenging problems involve lots of different roles and lots of different groups. And so, you know, what we need is people who who don't just do their job. They're willing to step out of their job boundaries or descriptions to do the job that's actually needed. And so they've got to, I like to think of it as um, kind of, well, um, let me stick with the foosball metaphor. It's like, you know, you, you sort of play your position, but you're willing to come out of your position if you see like a loose ball. It's like the goalie who's like, okay, my job is to defend the goal box, but I've got to like play out of the goal box just a little bit, or I'm in midfield. But if I see an opportunity, I'm going to move upfield and I'm going to go score. Like I'm going to play where the action is. I, I mean, I can really get my eye, my arms around this, and I've seen this too in organizations, and I've been this person where I've been that yeah. player that's in one spot, and I'm like, okay, that's not really my job per se. And that was the feedback I got early on in my career. The first few years is people were like, several of my early managers, like, you're not taking initiative. Yeah, you're standing there and doing the work that you, that like we have defined in the documentation and all that, but you're not really like looking for the opportunity. You're not going up the field, as you'd say, like you come back, you're still doing your role, but you're willing to move around a bit. And yeah. that's why I think this analogy really um, latched on for me is like when I broke out of that, like, oh, I could like just do something that I see as a problem and just see what happens. It's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. And it's not clump ball. So if, you know, there are any parents of little kids who are out there playing, you know, AYSO or peewee soccer, or, you know, like little, little kid soccer, you know what clump ball is. Yeah, it's like yeah. that all the players move to where the ball is. It's not that it's that you do your job, but you're willing to extend the boundaries of your job when like a problem is sitting out there in no man's land and you've got to go after it. Um, Dave, you mentioned like that feedback early in your career where it's like, hey, you can take initiative. Now, part of this research, and I have to admit, it was my favorite part of the research. The way I do research is I always sort of set things up very logically about, okay, what data do I need to be able to answer these questions? And then I always toss in one little extra part of the research that just is something I want to know about, something I'm interested in. And one of the things I did when we, you know, interviewed 170 managers is I asked every one of the managers, what do people do that you absolutely hate? Like what kind of infuriates you? And Uh. they're like, oh, nothing. I'm like, oh, 
you know, there's something. And then the list just starts to come. And then I also asked managers, like, what do you most love? And number two on the list of things that bosses just hate is when we people wait for them to tell them what to do. Okay. And then if you go over to the list of what bosses, leaders, managers love the most, number one on the list, when people say like, I love it when people do this. Now, Dave, you can already fill in the blank here. You probably know what this is. It's when people do things without being asked. Yeah. And like, this is one of the things I've learned, like studying the other side of leadership, like the art of contributing and self-managing is that bosses don't like being bossy. Like they're, they're very like, there's micromanaging everywhere. I've certainly learned this, you know, studying these diminishing and multiplying leaders, but I can't find people who actually enjoy doing it. Like I, there are probably <laughs> a few that do, but I think they're sociopaths. You know, they're probably <laughs> locked up somewhere, but it's like, no, like bosses don't like being bossy. They would much prefer people say, Hey, you know what? I saw this issue and I just, I'm going to go out and take care of it. Like, okay with you. Oh, more than okay with me. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. A related question to this um, is I have a, a client right now who is very much moving into the mindset, and in fact, in the mindset of an impact player and has been jumping in and uh, it, it is that midfielder in the game who's you know doing his role well, but is looking for opportunities to jump and contribute. And the organization has really responded to that. And then some really cool things have opened up. And he had he is now thinking like well how do i know like how do i know that uh, this is good for me in the long run like all of a sudden i'm taking on all these new things and it's not really part of my role are people going to take advantage of me now because i am doing a lot more of that I, I i'm curious if you had experienced that ever in your career or if you've seen people who've run into that and uh, what what is helpful as far as like kind of framing that from the long term perspective Mm. You know, Dave, I'm glad you asked about that because this was one of my worries the whole time doing this research and writing this book is I saw that the way these impact players operate and they, they work in this sort of aggressive value contributing way. And there's, you know, a number of different dimensions to this. We've been talking about one of them, but these, these impact players, they weren't prima donnas. They weren't bullies. They weren't people who were managing their brand and sort of like promoting themselves inside of the organization. They were often a little bit quiet about it, but yet these are people that managers really, really value. But I kept asking myself this question, like, well, what about the person who's contributing valuably, but they do it behind the scenes to the point where they get taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a number of ways that this can happen. It could be that they maybe are in a very behind the scenes support role, or maybe they are quiet, introverted. Maybe they have a tendency to be overlooked because of gender or race or just, you know, any way they may not fit into the more dominant profile inside of an organization. I'm like, well, what about, what about those folks? And so I do think there's a part of this where, well, first and foremost, this is the manager's job to make sure that the diversity is seen and appreciated and that people who are contributing in different ways and in different roles, not always on the stage, some behind the scenes kind of roles get appreciated. But I think as a contributor, you've got to be mindful to make sure you don't get relegated 
to like, I don't know, a steady contributor who's not valued. For me, this was pretty easy. And Dave, I have to admit that this is something that I have always been pretty assertive about is I've been careful not to let other people sort of, to not end up being the one doing the work and then having other people take credit for it. And I like, I remember one point very early in my career where I had been working on a program and it was now time to launch this program. And my boss got really excited about this. And it was, there was a binder that like this program was all going to go into this binder. And we were going to get these managers together and give them this binder, this kit. And I had, you know, it had been my idea. I'd done the work and my boss was really excited about it. And she's like, oh, okay, when we get together, she goes, I want to be the one to present the binder. And so it's just a dumb little binder. But I, I said, well, I'm like, but whose idea was this? And she's like, um, mine. Okay. <laughs> Yours. Right. And I'm like, yeah. And I, and who did the work and I'm doing this in kind of a fun, playful way with her. I'm like, but who, and then who did the work? And she's like, you. And then, then I'm like, okay, so like who should be the one to present the binder? And she's like, me. <laughs> oh, it's you, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah. And it wasn't that I needed to present the binder. I just didn't want to establish this precedent that I was going to do the work and someone else was going to take credit for it. And so I did it in sort of this playful way. But I, I've also done this. Um, I did this with the president of Oracle once where we had been working on this management training program and he and I had worked together very closely and we had built this thing. We were running the very first program and he gets up and he's like, oh, hey, you know, welcome to the program. You know, we built this because HR didn't have anything. And so, you know, we built this for you and I'm in HR and I'm sitting there going, what? And so at the first break, and this is Ray Lang, whom as a leader, I just really adore and probably someone I work better with than anyone else in my career. But this was early on working with him. And I pulled him aside at the first break. I'm like, Ray, can I talk to you? And he's like, yeah, what? And I'm like, Ray, are you unhappy with the program that we've built? He goes, no, I'm thrilled about it. And I'm like, Ray, are you unhappy with how you and I have worked together? And, you know, Dave, this is someone who's very much more senior than me in the organization. And, and yeah. he's like, no, I loved working with you on this list. And I'm like, then why would you say that? Like, like you kind of made it sound like we didn't. And he's like, well, no, I'm talking about the organization. No, you're great. I'm like, Ray, that's, that's not cool. And he apologized. He's like, man, let's, I'm so sorry. Like he had, like, he just hadn't thought about like the difference between the person and the organization. And he made a point of later making mention of that. And then I don't know, like a week later, I got invited to the special president's club down in Mexico to celebrate like the top contributors in the sales force. And so my husband, huh. and I, we're not even in sales. We're like, well, this is great. We get to <laughs> It wasn't like I was like, Ray, you know, like, rah, 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 rah. I just was like, let me try to understand this. And let me just try to make sure this person understands the contribution I've made to this. And it's always really worked out. I think maybe some people aren't as, I don't know if the right word to use about myself is like pushy or assertive about that. But I think it's important for people to make sure that their contribution is seen and certainly not unseen and not let other people take credit for the contribution they've made. Um, you know, it's about how to evidence your contribution. Um, again, not a single one of these impact players was this like self-promoting brand managing kind of, of 
person, but that doesn't mean that you can't show evidence of the contribution you've made. And the the story I kept thinking as I was working on the book was about how Intel launched this Intel Inside campaign mm-hmm. years ago. So, you know, the Intel, oh, I don't know, this is back in like the 90s and the whole personal computing market is exploding and, you yeah. know, Toshiba and IBM and everyone's making all these laptops. But the real genius of these laptops is the Intel microprocessor inside. And at the time, you know, Intel's microprocessor, um, I don't know, it was like this 486 chip was like so much faster than everything else. So the laptops with this chip in it were the high performing laptops, but Intel's not getting any love in this process because they're just the chip inside this thing, but it's where all the value is being created. And so they launched this campaign. It was called Intel Inside. And all it was, was a little printed stamp on the outside of the laptops. It just said Intel inside, a little circle around it. It was just printed. And but what I'm saying is like, oh, by the way, like this, you know, speedy laptop you've got, it's running on an Intel processor. And all they were doing was really elevating their contribution so it could be seen. And I think we can do something as simple as this, which is just, hey, here's the report brought to you by and I think it can be done in a very tasteful and valuable way. Yeah, indeed. And I so appreciate you sharing that story with Ray. I mean, I when I when I think about I mean, I'm sure there's ways that those kinds of interactions go wrong sometimes for people, but the the vast majority of people that I hear from often say, I would love to have an employee like that. I would love to have an employee who is yes respectful and courteous of course and 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 says it in the right way but that really does tell me the truth about how what i might have said could be could have been misperceived or didn't frame something well for the organization and there's so few people that are willing to do that and i think it's it's a wonderful invitation you make to us to look for that opportunity to be brave in some of those moments and to ask and to come to it from a place of curiosity like you did and and where something landed and you know what what a what a way to be able to help the organization but also from a branding standpoint to be able to build your your own brand and your own career a bit too and and there was no greater supporter of me in my career than Ray Ling you know and he's someone that I have just the utmost respect for and I think when he was like we built this program. I think I was part of that we, and it came off wrong. And if I can just say one thing to help those who might be struggling with that, and it comes from all my research on leadership and diminishing leadership. And what I have found when I studied these multiplying leaders and these diminishing leaders, you know, diminishing leaders who shut down others, what I found was that most of the diminishing that's happening in the workplace is accidental. You know, it's not that tyrannical micromanaging know-it-all boss that's like trying to keep you down and keep you in the place. Like most of the things that that make us feel like someone is thwarting us, underutilizing us, keeping us down is done with the best of intentions, actually. Like again, but back to Ray, like when he said, like, we built this program because HR didn't have it, I think I was part of the we. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm part of HR. Like, and 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 so like when, you know, anyone who's listening to this, if you feel like you're being overlooked, like look at that and and go, you know, I I want to tell you that eight out of 10 times that is accidental. 
And back to like my, my boss with the, the silly binder situation, she was just excited about it. Mm. I don't think she was like, oh, I'm going to take credit for Liz's work. And so when it's accidental, it's so much easier to go in and say like, can I make sure my contribution is, is acknowledged here? This book is so wonderful on, on two different lenses, I'm thinking. Uh, one of them is for each one of us in our own careers. And so many of the things you've mentioned here on just how to be able to position ourselves in a way that's going to really help us to be impactful players and to make the contributions we want. And the other lens I'm thinking of this to uh, Liz is for those of us who find ourselves in places in our careers where we've we've done some of this and we've learned some of these lessons to be able to use this as a framework for others too. Like I would love to hand this book to someone who's maybe been identified as a high potential employee or someone who's, who's, who's a contributor, but they have a lot of potential to be able to move forward as what a wonderful framework this is to be able to invite them to begin to think like an impact player. And so I hope folks will, will do both of those things. Liz Wiseman is the author of Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, play bigger, and multiply your impact. Liz, thank you so much for your time. Dave, it's always fun talking to you. If this conversation was helpful to you, a few related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is the last time Liz was on the show, episode 340, The Benefit of Being a Rookie. Oftentimes, we think about rookies as being at a disadvantage of not having the experience and the perspective to add value to the organization. And in fact, there's a lot of advantages that rookies have of coming with an objective mindset and coming with new ideas. In episode 340, Liz talked about some of those key benefits. I shared a bunch of her stories and the stories of others that hopefully will help you to look at being a rookie from a different lens, whether you're in that position or perhaps someone you're leading is in that position. It's a wonderful place to begin. I'd also recommend episode 422, Influence Through Overlapping Networks. My friend Sandy Morgan is a global leader on the issue of human trafficking, has been working throughout her entire career on uh, helping organizations and countries to face that difficult issue. In episode 422, she talks about one of the things she's so gifted at, which is working across different networks, different industries, and how to not duplicate work that has already been done and to be able to come alongside organizations and leaders who are already doing great work. So much there for all of us, whether you're in the nonprofit space, government, business, higher education, a ton of opportunity to think about how you utilize overlapping networks more effectively. Episode 422 for that. I'd also recommend episode 452, How to Motivate Leaders. My guest on that episode was John Maxwell. John is, of course, a leader in helping leaders to become more effective for themselves and their organizations and for others. Uh, he's been a best-selling author for many decades, has published millions of copies of books on leadership. And in that episode, we talked about his perspective on when you are trying to motivate the high-impact players, the leaders. How do you do that? What's different about that than maybe with other employees and other uh, folks in the organization? Episode 452 for all his detailed thoughts on that. And then finally, I'd recommend an episode that I aired on the Dave's Journal podcast called Keep Your Ideas From Being stolen. That's one of the fears that comes up for many of us when we start to uh, engage, maybe try to make a bigger impact is, you know, a lot of us start to worry, well, what if other people steal my ideas? And that's a real challenge for many of us inside our organizations. Some practical steps in that episode on how you can reduce that and 
really make that into an advantage for you. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership on coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes that I've aired since 2011. Many, many conversations over the years on career growth and talent development, which is where this episode will be filed under. We've had lots of other conversations there. I invite you to jump in so that you can find what's most relevant for you. That's why we center the episode library inside the website by topic, not by number, so that it can really be most useful to you and what's important to you right now, not only in your own career, but also for your team to be able to pass along as a resource plus tons of other resources inside the free membership portal, including all of the free audio courses, access to my full library of every article I found and passed along in the weekly leadership guide in recent years, also searchable by topic, plus access to my weekly leadership guide that comes each week. It'll include the links of the relevant notes from the episode, also many of the current event items in the news and in other resources, podcast articles that I found that'll be useful to you. All of that accessible, 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 I don't know, I think that's a word, for free at coachingforleaders.com. Go ahead and set up your free membership and we will be off and running with you on everything going forward. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Sukinder Singh Cassidy to the show. She's an accomplished technology executive and former CEO to several successful organizations. She's joining me to discuss how to nail a job transition. Join me for that conversation with Sukinder. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you back next Monday.